Welcome to the Writing to Get Business podcast, where you'll get tips to expand your writing skills. Every week, you'll hear tips and strategies to support your writing. Pat Iyer is your show hostess, a ghostwriter, editor, and author who has written 48 books. Sit back, relax, and listen. Here's your hostess, Pat Iyer. Hi, this is Pat Iyer with Writing to Get Business, and I have with me today Mark Boundy, who is the author of a book in the area of sales and focusing on the value that your company's products and services offer their customers. Mark and I connected through the C-Suite Network. We are both connected to that organization, and they are the ones who are providing the megaphone platform which is the biggest business podcast platform in the world. Mark, welcome to the show. Pat, it's really great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'd like to talk with you about your background. So we have some context about your book and what it provides to the listener. Tell our viewer your area of expertise, and then we'll talk about your book and why you wrote the book, how you wrote the book, what the book is about. Yep. Well, my area of expertise is to be much more of a generalist than people get to be typically in mid to late career. I was lucky. It turns out that I was lucky. It didn't feel like it at the time to have been a product manager for a company. And then the telecom industry blew up and I couldn't get another job anywhere in telecom. And then I was in um, uh, finance, commercial real estate finance, so financial services until the financial system blew up in 2008. And then I was in sales training, sales performance consulting. Um, and now I, I've left that. So I have this wide experience as a product manager, product marketing manager, sales, sales leader. Uh, so I'm one of the few sales people and sales experts who's actually had profit and loss responsibility. And so that gave me this perspective that selling, when a sales manager tells their salespeople, sell the value so you don't have to discount, I had the P&L responsibility. So I felt the pain when the salespeople weren't good at that. Uh, I was mm -hmm. also lucky enough to work at some companies that were maniacal about understanding customer value, understanding the customer business, understanding how our product, our service affected the customer's business, how we were growing the customer's business by being enough of an expert in the customer's business to be able to, to get at all the detail. And turns out that that's a, a much more rare thing than I thought when I was uh, coming up. And so I decided to write a book about that. All right. That certainly sounds like it's a con that concept that applies to multiple businesses, whether they're small or whether they're multi-million or multi-billion dollar a year businesses. Yeah, it is. I, you know, during this last phase when I was a sales performance consultant, we had clients in products, services, uh, professional services, big manufactured products, uh, capital equipment, um, electronic components and all kinds of different businesses. And I was able to see the common thread of what's missing on all of those. And it was, it, 
ironically, what I had learned at this first job about understanding customer business, understanding the outcomes that your customer is buying. And so um, I kind of acid tested what I thought I knew through all of these different client engagements in a lot of different industries. And I think you're unusual in in the respect that you've combined the leadership management role with the sales role, and you can see both perspectives. But sometimes individuals who don't have that background can only look at the problem from one lens instead of both lenses. Yeah, I the 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 I have seen salespeople and heard salespeople actually say this: "It's the company's job to make a profit." at the price I sold. I've also heard sales leaders, maybe not in that same person or in that same company, but I've heard sales leaders who don't, who aren't rigorous about resisting discounts or selling the value or getting the right price. Um, they're leading the only department in a company that is, doesn't seem to care about profitability. All they care about is revenue at any level of profitability. If, you're the, if you lead the only department in your company that doesn't care about profit and you're complaining that you don't have a seat at the management table, maybe the first is the reason for the second. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it, as you said, Pat, it, a lot of times the sales leader gets frustrated that they aren't taken seriously and oftentimes that is a contributor to why. And mm-hmm. if, if you're a, CSO, a CF, or CEO, CFO, and that salesperson has been for years building their reputation inside the company of um, taking any deal, no matter how drastically unprofitable, do you want, do, do you think that you can have a insightful leadership strategic conversation with somebody who thinks that way yeah uh, i see the dilemma and so you know this one of the subtitles is my book is is to grow your company and your career because if you're a salesperson, you're going to be more successful when you sell value if you're a sales coach you're going to be a much better coach if you're a sales leader and you lead a sales organization that sells value and gets the right price, you still have a lot more headroom in your career versus the sales leader who is, uh, I almost said, uh, who's, who's undisciplined about price. <laughs> I'm going I'm to po- keep your podcast clean. Yeah, otherwise there may be complaints. <laughs> <laughs> We haven't had any guests who have crossed the barrier, and you won't be the first one. (laughs) Something led you to write this book. Let's talk about your motivation, because to to think in terms of writing a book goes means you're going from no books to your first book, and that can be a steep uphill battle for many people who never get to that point. Yeah, you know, I started writing this book, and when I was writing it, it was during the time I was a sales performance consultant. So I started writing this book around helping salespeople sell value more effectively. And then I got to the to the part where it was under a salesperson's job is understanding their customer's business. 
and to be a consultant and to develop some business acumen. And I wrote a, while I was writing that chapter, I just wrote a blog post and a bunch of my colleagues at this big sales training company, Miller Hyman, shared this. And even some of the top performers are saying, this is the biggest thing in, in my clients. This is the biggest complaint I see from vice presidents of sales of these people that they don't have business acumen. I'm going to, I'm, here's an article that talks about the thing that you're complaining about. So suddenly I thought, well, geez, business acumen, that's, so that kind of opened my eyes. And as you said, I was in this sales training, sales management, sales consulting, and somebody opened my eyes to all the things that outside of the sales silo, outside of the sales department. And so that was when I decided that this book shouldn't just be another sales book because I was struggling about writing the sales book and it's just another sales book. There's a million of those. But as soon as it became about business acumen and connecting the sales function to the rest of the organization and feeding insights that sales gathers to marketing so marketing can do better and so that product leaders and product strategy can be better, I saw there is not a book out there that does that. And hmm. so it's a bigger, wider, more holistic book, uh, which is an advantage because it's unique, but it's a disadvantage in that a vice president of sales only enjoys two thirds of the chapters <laughs> and the CEO enjoys one third of the book. And so um, it, and it's also kind of tilting at windmills a little bit, isn't it? And I'm asking corporate leaders to admit that the silo, the siloed organizations that they've built have a, have a, uh, a failing, have a, a disadvantage. And so I'm asking them to relook at how they've organized and how they've siloed. And that's a big ask of a CEO and how to de-silo your organization. So, uh, but I decided, you know, that's my purpose. That's what I'm going to do. Mm. And it, oh, I'm sorry, I mean, I'm, it turns out that there are enough CEOs and enough leaders of companies that kind of get that and kind of want to do better and definitely want to do better that it's turned into a, a great consulting practice around doing that. I've been ghostwriting a book that's just about finished now with a man who comes to the area of helping companies with dysfunctional executive teams. Oh. He's an organizational psychologist and provided therapy for years and then switched over to working with corporations. And he has seen multiple situations or been brought in where those silos that you're describing cause this intense breakdown in communication and a lot of dysfunctional behavior until he works with them and helps them see, hey, there's a better way to manage this. Um, that's, a, that's a huge thing. I, I worked when I was in that telecom portion of my, my history, the telecom career part of my multi-career history. Uh, I worked for Lucent Technologies, mm -hmm. uh, who was the former... Bell Labs, who was the former Bell company. So you can't imagine a more hierarchical, command and control, multi-layer. There was 12 layers between uh, of management. And so it was very hierarchical, very siloed. 
And during the um, telecom contraction of 2008, uh, everybody in that entire organization was desperate to keep their jobs. And so it became super dysfunctional and super siloed because everybody was trying to justify their job at the expense of yours. Mm-hmm. Right? Who's, if, if, I can sh- if I can do that, then you're going to be on the layoff list and I'm not. And so uh, I got to see that siloed dysfunction raised to an exponential level. And um, what, in retrospect, what a valuable experience to seeing how bad it can get and just how dysfunctional it is. And so you can kind of see the dysfunction in siloed organizations where it, it isn't, isn't that bad. You know, very few companies are that bad. But um, you, can, you start to see all the dysfunction and all of the waste of money. Um, this isn't a political statement, but anytime somebody tells me private enterprise can do it better than government, I kind of roll my eyes or you know, silently say into myself, so, sometimes I'll, I will say out loud, you must never have worked at a big company <laughs> because big companies really aren't that much better than government. I don't know if Lucent was headquartered in New Jersey, but as you were talking about them, I have a vision of driving past their headquarters. And, and my son worked there for one of his college breaks. So I, I have some familiarity. I was living in New Jersey in 2008, and I can picture the headquarters. I even have the building yeah. in my mind. And Homedale and, yep. Uh, yes, yes they, were, they were headquartered in New Jersey. Um, and Bell Labs had like the highest per capita population of Nobel Prize winner in private enterprise in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you couldn't swing a cat without hitting a Nobel Prize winner in some parts of those buildings. And uh, the transistor was invented there, satellite communication, radar. And, and so, so many inventions came out of Bell Labs that it was brilliant people uh, but they couldn't market their way out of a wet paper bag. Mm. Uh, I actually had a telecommunications company tell us, oh, Cisco, they give us great slides, but they can't do what they say. But you guys at Lucid, you can't say what you do. <laughs> <laughs> and when you think about it, Mark, there's so much wasted potential when you've got yeah. brilliant people who have those barriers my husband is from India, and there's an expression in, in our family that if you are really bright in one area, and I'm raising my hand like the scales yeah. of justice, you are, there's got to be some piece that's missing somewhere else that you just can't typically be yeah. bright in both areas. So you need other people in your life to help compensate for the things that you don't do well, or no. departments and companies or managers just... You know, the brilliant scientist can't always function completely. Let me take this, you know, this whole discussion sounds like it might be a little bit of, you know, undirected whining. But let me take this to your back to your listeners to give you an example. And let me ask you this question and tell you a scenario that I run into regularly. Um, I'm older than I care to admit, but maybe 30 years ago, 
uh, a company would have five different departments or roles that touch the customer, two of which were sales, and then there might be customer service and, and a, one or two others. And what we used to tell them when there was five customer-facing roles was sales, those two inside sales and outside sales, those will sell the value. The other three of you just stay in your lane, do your job, and come back to the office. And it was maybe suboptimal, but it, was, it, it wasn't too harmful. Today, I have, especially in the, in the SaaS software and in some other industries, there are 12. And I have one client that has 15 roles that regularly touch the customer that customer interface has grown and expanded and become siloed and sub-siloed and soda strut. So now there are 15 roles that touch the customer and we still tell them, here's the two roles. Now there's three roles in sales, not just two, but the three roles in sales, you concentrate on value and you other 12, stay in your lane, do your job and come, out of the, come back to the office. Those 12 roles have relationships with counterparts at your customers and your clients that sales will never have. They will never meet those people. Those 12 roles have trusted relationships at a trust level that your salespeople can never hope to have. As a matter of fact, if you rank the 15 different roles from top to bottom in terms of how much trust the customer has in them, your sales is in the bottom third. And all of those other people that you tell, stay in your lane, do your job and come back to the office. Don't talk to the customer about their business. Don't talk to the customer about your outcome. Stay in your lane and come back to the office. You're wasting a huge resource in terms of customer relationship, customer insights, understanding the customer business because you're still telling them to stay in your lane. And when I explain that to leaders, they say, yeah, you know what? You're right. And this is just one of those things that when you explain it, it becomes obvious. And so this siloing that we have allowed to take place was that proverbial frog boiling. It was okay 30 years ago when there were five roles. Now there's 12 or 15 and you're still doing the same thing. And it's sucking the competitiveness, sucking the customer insight, sucking the, the performance out of your customer relationship. And as you were talking about all those 12 roles, I was also thinking about the coordination and the communication crosswise and how easy it is for that not to occur with people who are staying in their lanes who might identify, yeah. hey, we see this problem, but we're not going to tell the other people in the company because that's not our job. They've got to figure it out themselves. That's exactly right. We've been told to stay on our lane. I've been told essentially not to share that insight. That's sales' job. And if I tell sales, they say, you know, what are you doing trying to find that out? That's my job. Then when you see companies that are built on a different model, the striking difference is evident. It is. Uh, I was very lucky. One of my first jobs that kind of got me on this whole journey about understanding customer value, um, everybody in the company knew, had a straight line of sight between their job and customer value. 
the guy who swept the floors know, knew that he was making the place workplace safe so that we could serve the customer. The customers, you know, my, my manufacturing people, when I would come with a semi-custom design and saying, we'd make it just like this standard product, but we need to change the color here or add one more conductor to the cable here or whatever. Um, the manufacturing folks said that should be an easy prototype to make. But before I invest the time in doing that, tell me what's the customer's business? What's the value? What do they get when, they, when we make this change? Why are we going to, you know, why, are they, why do they value us? Why do, they, why do we think they are going to pay us a 20% price premium over anybody else? And I could not get a prototype built without answering that question to the manufacturing folks. I couldn't get that drawing approved if I didn't tell the process engineer that exact same thing. Everybody had the license and the discipline to challenge everybody else in what's the customer's value. And if we didn't know the customer's value, it probably was going to be a piece of business where we didn't capture our usual accustomed price premium. And the discipline was kill it before we invest too many resources on it. Mm -hmm. what, what a gift to have at the beginning of your career to inform so many other experiences in your future. And we talked a little bit, and I know that you included in the book before we started recording, that traditional sales speak talks about features and benefits. Yeah. And I asked you to help me differentiate between benefits and value. I know that that's a key focus in your book. For our listener, how would you tease those two apart? Well, features are what you do well, and it's usually listed in you know, in, in your, your products. So it's, that is described in seller centric terms. It is our feature benefits attempts to start to turn that into what the customer derives from that. And I like to go beyond simple benefits to a whole array or network of benefits. And I, and I want to call them customer outcomes because sometimes that first tier benefit gets a second tier. And so the example that's really easy for anybody in any industry is uh, I had a commercial, a client that sold commercial carpet. So we all know what carpet is and we all know what an office building is. So they sold carpet that goes into office buildings and their carpet, one of these models of carpet lasts longer, 20% longer say. And so Theoretically, they should be able to price it 19% higher because on a dollars per year standpoint, you should be able to price your carpet 19% longer and you're higher and your customer should prefer you at least until your competitor drops their price by 2%, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that dollars per year benefit, all, there's, there's a whole series and a whole cascade of other customer outcomes. And one of those is, for instance, that th there's fewer replacement cycles. And now if that carpet is in your conference room, that's no big deal. You just replace it over two a two-day weekend. But if that same carpet is underneath your 24 by 7 by 365 customer service operation, the cost of the interruption, removing all the furniture and computers, finding a new place for your people to work for 48 hours, reconnecting the computers after the, the installation and listening to, you know, having facilities listen to the complaints of you lost my 
university of whatever mug and my grandchild's picture is missing and my computer still isn't working right. Or you, you, this isn't my chair. This is somebody else's chair. And right. That all of that business disruption um, is, has a monetary impact on the company that is worth more than the entire price of the carpet. So where on a dollars per year, the competitor simply has to drop their price until the math, the dollars per year math works in their favor. Mm -hmm. When it's that business disruption underneath the right department, there is no discount that your competitor can give that overcomes fewer replacement cycles and the business disruption. So we want to talk about, yeah, it lasts longer. And now what are the other outcomes? And so then there's, you know, the, the carpet looks shabby towards the end of the life and that happens less happen. And there's more cleaning of a semi-worn carpet towards the end of its life. And you have to do that less often. And, and other, you know, a cavalcade, a network of other outcomes that stretch all around the company. And so for any advantage, any feature where you're differentiated, I work with customers to find out all of the cascade of business outcomes, customer business outcomes accrue from that differentiated feature. And then who cares, which departments care. And so we, we work through that. And so that's the difference between features and benefits and a whole array of customer outcomes. And I've been smiling while I've been listening to you, Mark, because when I bought an office condo with my husband in 1995, one of the things that we noticed was that the carpeting looked really new. And by the time I sold the company in 2015, the carpeting did not look new any longer. And there were lateral filing cabinets on top of it and desks. And the new owner said, you know, we're, we're going to have to invest some money in the physical plant when we take over your company. Well, I think six years later, it's still the same gray carpeting throughout because they did that whole calculation of, my God, just changing the carpeting in a small business is not an easy undertaking when it's yeah. on every floor surface in 2,400 square feet. And that's just a tiny space compared to what you would do to disrupt a company to change something like carpeting. Sure. And it gets really complicated. You know, as a, as a trained nurse, you understand, uh, I've got another client that sells, sells um, hospital, that sells lab equipment to the hospital. So think of the equipment that when a nurse takes away the little blood vial and it, it does all the different blood tests. One of the vendors has a reputation for their equipment lasting longer. Within the hospital environment, when you replace that big piece of equipment, it's not just the cost and it's not just the dollars per year. All of the lab personnel have to get retrained on the new equipment. You actually have to allocate double the lab equipment so that while the old equipment is still working, that you're qualifying and getting people trained on the new equipment because you can't be down that lab equipment. So you have double the lab space, you have double the training, you have to, now that new equipment this model year, it operates differently. And so all of the sample gathering SOPs for all the nurses in the entire hospital, you have to examine those for what has to change and how the reports get changed and how that thing interconnects to the electronic patient records. And it just goes on and on and on. So that yep. long, longer life, uh, whenever a client says we, we last longer, we, I know 
it's a it's it's a relatively straightforward exercise to understand that client's customers business until they can turn last longer into a huge almost competitively insurmountable advantage in their markets mm-hmm. i spent seven years in staff development responsible for all of the training of nurses in a hospital and had a taste of what you're talking about changing all the procedures doing all the education on all three shifts making sure the patients were being taken care of while the nurses were in a conference room learning about the new technique thinking about the people who worked weekends working for agencies worked part-time how do we train them in the new technique Uh, lots of implications and, and Pat, you hit on something that's really important. A customer, when they hear, yes, it lasts longer, the customer by themselves will easily think of do- that dollars per year, sort of a cap expense and, and so forth. But, and they may think of, because the, the party with the budget responsible is the lab manager. And so they may think about the training but they don't think beyond the lab into what happens on all the nursing staffs in all the shifts in all the training and all the education and all the socialization and all the SOPs. They don't naturally think about those until a great salesperson says, tell me what happens outside of your lab when you change one of these things. And then they usually know, but unguided by a great salesperson, they will not think about that. They will not calculate that into the ROI of this purchase. Mm -hmm. And so part of the exercise and working with clients is understanding how to not only what those impacts are, but now you, you have those conversations so that those outcomes start to exist in the customer's mind. They're always going to exist, but until the customer uses them as part of the decision, they don't exist in the buying decision. You know, Mark, I think we could uncover nuances of this topic for the next two days without stopping to take a breath, and we wouldn't exhaust what you know about this topic. Your challenge, I think, was to put together a book that would not be a two-volume set of a 1,000 pages, but to condense down the key concepts. Was that a challenge for you when you were writing the book? Well, yeah, it, it, it was a challenge. And I, um, I'm, I'm that guy that, you know, when you ask me what time it is, I tend to tell you how to build a watch. And so it was really easy for me to get too detailed. And the work was shortening it down to explain enough about the concept so people understood where they were getting, but I, you're just not able to, to do that. And so um, I'm happy to talk with, with people and, and help them realize what, what these are and put the, the operational detail behind that. And so, um, yeah, it was very difficult to boil it down into you know, 230 pages. Tell our listener the name of the book and how they can find out more about you and the services that you offer. The book, the title of the book, and it's available on Amazon, the big A, uh, it's called Radical Value uh, by Mark Boundy, and Boundy is B-O-U-N-D-Y, almost like the paper towels. Uh, and you can get a hold of me at boundyconsulting.com, B-O-U-N-D-Y consulting.com, or at mark at boundyconsulting.com. Perfect. Thank you so much, Mark. 
uh, we've covered a lot of territory today from focusing on features and benefits and values to the hazards of having highly siloed organizations that fragment communication and make it difficult for a company to coherently provide its value to its customer bases. And I think your book would be a great asset for anyone who is focused on business-to-business -business selling and marketing and thinking about their company from the perspective of what are the outcomes that they help their clients achieve and also what are the costs, as we've touched on, of innovation or associated with a product that lasts this amount of time, X amount of time versus one that lasts 2X. We've talked about training challenges and personnel changes and all kinds of costs that come with the innovation, also benefits, of course, but the implications of making changes in your company are sometimes hidden and not considered when yeah. companies are thinking about changing or purchasing new products. And if your salespeople understand the customer's perspective, that has a huge impact on how well a company is going to perform. Yeah, very true. I like to say that your differentiation delivers customer outcomes, and those outcomes have tentacles that spread widely and deeply throughout your customer's company. And most sales organizations do not understand any of the tentacles. And truly selling and understanding your, your product or your services impact to your customer is understanding all those tentacles and aggressively just going out and discovering how deeply and how widely and how strongly those tentacles um, extend throughout your company's, your customer's company. I'm envisioning a tree with roots. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for being on the show. I appreciate that. Pat, thank you so much. Uh, it was really a pleasure. And thank you to you who is either watching this on the Pat Iyer YouTube channel or listening to this on our audio platforms. We appreciate you, your attention, the fact that you've devoted the last 30 minutes or so to listening to Mark Boundy and myself discussing his book. Be sure to come back next week for a new show, new topic, and subscribe to the channel so that you get notified about updates. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for writers at writingtogetbusiness.com. That is W-R-I-T-I-N-G-T-O-G-E-T-B-U-S-I-N-E-S-S dot com. Coaches, consultants, and entrepreneurs work with Pat so they can get more business by writing and sharing their expertise. Check out Pat's resources on writingtogetbusiness.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.